welcome to the Journey Women podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Belis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. Today, we have the joy of learning from Dr. David Filson on one of the most beautiful aspects of the Bible, the covenants. Dr. Filson is a father and a pastor. He's been in pastoral ministry for over 30 years and has served at his current church in Nashville for the last decade. This conversation will truly help you see Jesus in all of Scripture. Before we get started, we just want to point out that faithful Bible scholars differ in opinion on their approach to the covenants. We encourage you, as always, to go to your Bible, read some books from scholars who maintain different views, and explore the topic of covenantal theology with men and women in your local context. Dr. Filson, welcome to the Journey Women podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I just told you that my only lament is that I wasn't recording when we made our first introductions. You have this beautiful shelf behind you full of theology books, and I made mention of it, and you actually took me on a tour of your library, which I believe is about 2.5 rooms large. Is that correct? It is. It is. uh, It (laughs) takes up two and a half rooms. It actually does here at the Academy. And the other reason, obviously, as we're talking, why you should lament that this is not on video is because of this incredible mane and glorious beard that I have (laughs) that is the exact reason why my wife is going to be thrilled this is audio only because this this is still my COVID look and I'm convinced it's a look that really it's it's time for the mullet to to make a return but somebody told me the other day that I look like Francis Schaefer and Wolverine had a baby and then and then somebody else said no he looks like a guy who's looking for a bunch of a bunch of dwarves and hobbits to help him take a, a mountain back from a dragon and call me Gandalf so I do have to say that if you're envisioning the type of person that's going to have a conversation about the covenants, you're not what I had in my mind uh, when we hopped onto video. I did see that you like to lift heavy things in your bio. So I thought, well, maybe he's into weightlifting. Maybe we have some commonality there. But Brooks would be very proud of the look that you have curated. He actually started covid with a big grizzly beard, but had to shave everything off in time for recruiting for his upcoming job. I'm getting ready to do a series of lectures on apologetics for Westminster Theological Seminary, where I'm an adjunct professor and uh-huh. doing a course on, on apologetics for them. And it's going to be videoed and part of their online program. And my wife said, you know, those videos will be forever. <laughs> and you need to represent the seminary better than this thing that you've had fun with. And she, she makes statements like, don't you think we need to get rid of that that beard? <laughs> Don't you think we are ready? The collective thing, yes. The collective thing. So, you know, it won't be too long. I'll have my fine young man look going again. <laughs> you seem to have a lot of things that you're interested in. Could you tell the listeners a little bit more about what you're interested in and, and who you are and what you do? Yeah, well, I've um, been here in the Nashville area. This was home to me, and I've been pastoring here in the PCA since uh, 98, 99. And after I finished uh, Covenant Seminary, where I did my NDIV, and went on from there over the years to do a PhD in historical and theological studies at Westminster Theological Seminary, where I'm now an adjunct. I I started off doing my doctoral work 
in largely post-Reformation historical theological uh, studies. And so covenant theology, and especially as it relates to the historical development of covenant theology, was a big part of what I studied and so forth. But then a lot of my emphasis is on Jonathan Edwards, who lived from 1703 to 58. And so most of my, in fact, these are all the works of Edwards up there. Well, not that our listeners can see. I'm pointing to them as if they can see where they are. But I've worked on Edwards for a number of years, but I've always been interested in the history of ideas, philosophy, apologetics, etc. And so as I was uh, doing some research over the years, I stumbled on a lot of unpublished correspondence between two apologists, Cornelius Van Til and J. Oliver Buswell. So I shifted and did my dissertation on apologetics, particularly the work of Cornelius Van Til. So it's historical, still a, you know, a big part of who I am, but probably a lot of my energies now are being poured into apologetics. I teach apologetics for Westminster and for RTS, and that's just where a lot of my, my heart is. And then here at the Academy, uh, Christ Presbyterian Academy in Nashville, where I teach, you know, I teach apologetics to teenagers. And so teaching apologetics from teens to adult graduates in theology, it's just kind of my my world. But historical theology has been a, a real love of mine over the years. And you can't do reformed historical theology without, you know, wrestling with covenant theology, which, as you said, is kind of beastly and a lot of confusion around it. You know, I've, I've chaired the Theological Examining Committee for the Nashville Presbytery for uh, close to 20 years. And, and I'll tell you, one of the things that I find with ministerial candidates in my tradition in the Presbyterian Church in America, shockingly at times, is how weak candidates are on their understanding of covenant theology, both from a biblical and a systematic and a historical theological perspective. So the systematic uh, implications of covenant theology, the biblical covenants, which I'm sure we'll talk about here, as well as how covenant theology developed throughout the history of the church. It's kind of a daunting subject, you know, can be a little confusing. I have done light reading on the topic of Mm -hmm. covenant theology. I did not grow up in a church which adhered to covenant theology and then began wrestling with more, I guess, practical questions and realized that a lot of those questions were really rooted in understanding the covenants. And so I think a lot of the listeners will probably be in the same boat as me, where they're just maybe coming to this topic with a little bit of trepidation. Mm -hmm. Many of us are in seasons of life where it's challenging to read, let alone (laughs) read uh, a book where you're kind of going through systematic theology or biblical theology even. So I hope that today we'll be able to have a conversation that'll maybe just wet their palates and give them a little bit of excitement about breaching this topic. It's coming in the context of a series on knowing and loving God. So Mm. we've talked about revelation and we've talked about um, knowing God through his word and we've talked about the character of God and God's providence. But today we're really talking about how God relates to man. So we've alluded to it, but can you expound upon how it is that God relates to man? God relates to man covenantally. He relates to him covenantally, and there is no relating to God for any human being, for any man, woman, boy, or girl, whoever has, is, or will live, who is not related to God covenantally. And what I mean by that is that by virtue of creation, everyone is in covenant with God. We're either covenant keepers or covenant breakers. We are either represented by the first Adam, who is a covenant breaker, and we in him a covenant breaker, or we're represented by the last Adam, who is the true covenant keeper, and we in him are viewed as covenant keepers. But by virtue of creation, every person is in covenant with God. The most vociferous 
card carrying, you know, hard bitten atheist is as much in covenant with God as you or I are. It's just that the covenant relationship is different in terms of uh, our representation as a covenant breaker or a covenant keeper. So man relates to God by covenant, by virtue of his very creation. John Calvin, we think about the history of covenant theology and John Calvin in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which most people, when they read the Institutes, they read what's called the 1559 edition. Calvin actually was converted in 1534. Two years later, he wrote the first edition of the Institutes. It was a very slim little volume. It was just a little commentary on the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments. He didn't he didn't write it really as a big systematic theology, but he called it in Latin a summa pietas, a sum of Christian living. So he wrote it as a little handbook on how to live the Christian life. Well, it went through various uh, updates and, and additions. There was a, a 39 uh, update of that, a 41 French, a 43, and then finally a 59. Well, by the time you start moving into Calvin's later editions of this, particularly about 1539, he's wrestling with the book of Romans, and he's dealing with the, the doctrine of union with Christ, not only because he's preaching through the book of Romans, but because he's really immersing himself in the early fathers, the early church fathers. And in the early church fathers, you see in an embryonic form the doctrines of both union with Christ and covenant theology, not as clearly hammered out and clearly expressed as you see it later, say, in the Westminster Confession or, or in, a, you know, in a modern Reformed book you might get on Reformed theology. But you see the, the seeds of covenant theology and union with Christ in the early fathers. And so Calvin is drinking this in, and it starts to form some of the material that expands the Institutes. Well, in the Institutes... In the final edition of the Institutes, in uh, book two of the Institutes, uh, chapters 9 through 11, 9 through 11 and 12, really particularly, he deals with the doctrine of covenant theology. But he builds that upon book one, which is where he taught, where Calvin, who in his dates are 1509 to 64, mm-hmm. where he talks about man's relationship to God, man's relationship to God as a covenantal creature, a man who is in covenant with God by virtue of the fact that he's created in the image of God and he has obligations to the God in whose image he's created. And so man relates to God covenantally through what Calvin calls general revelation. Now, some of your listeners may have heard of the language of general revelation, and they think of, well, yes, God has revealed himself generally to all mankind through what he's created, the sky, the the stars. I mean, you're getting ready to go skiing, and so you'll see beautiful scenery all around you. And as Psalm 104 tells us, and, and other places in Scripture, Romans 1, creation bears witness to the Creator. And so general revelation through the mediating agency of creation. But Calvin also speaks of general revelation, God having revealed himself and related himself to all mankind generally through uh, not the mediating agency of a beautiful valley or looking out at the stars, etc., but what he calls immediate general revelation or non-mediated general revelation. In other words, there's not a mediating agency of a beautiful mountain range or something that declares the existence of God, but immediate, it's not chronological, like instantaneous, but non-mediated general revelation because man is created what he calls imago dei or in the image of God. And because he's created Imago Dei, he is possessed of a handful of things. Calvin uses Latin phrases like the semen religionis, the seed of religion, or the cognitio incitia Dei, an implanted knowledge of God, or the sensus divinitatis, a sense of the divine, not a spark of divinity. This is not Gnosticism, but an awareness that God is. And so 
to answer your question, man relates to God because man is himself unavoidably revelational. You and I as creatures are revelatory of the creator. Even if I deny the existence of God, that doesn't change the fact that I am, by virtue of my very existence, revelatory of the God who has created me. And even if I shake my fist in the face of God, I am obligated to the God who has created me. I owe him obedience. I owe him deference. And so all people are covenantally related to God. Now, of course, that idea of general revelation is also backed up by uh, Calvin's doctrine of special revelation, which is God has revealed himself as creator in general revelation and as savior in special revelation. Special revelation is the revealed word of God, inscripturated in the Bible and incarnated in Christ, who is John 1, 1, the word of God. And so we see God as redeemer in Christ revealed, inscripturated and incarnated, the word of God written and the word of God incarnate. So uh, all of us are covenantally related to God. And subsequently, as God has revealed himself in special revelation, since we are related to him covenantally, he reveals his activities with man, his ways with man through the covenant. And, you know, there are three primary, theologically speaking, covenants, redemption, works, and grace. Uh-huh. And the, the covenant of grace is seen in a number of administrations in the Old Testament, all of which are fulfilled by Christ. I ain't never yelled in the sound booth before, but we going and I'm going to try to keep up with you here. (laughs) We're going to cook with gas, man. We're not going to wait for the charcoal to heat up. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. (laughs) Put on your thinking cap or your crash helmet because we're going to think or we're going to (laughs) crash. Well, I think it was Packer who said that the word of God cannot properly be understood unless it is viewed within a covenantal frame. Even Spurgeon, whom I love and have learned so much from, says that the doctrine of the covenant lies at the root of true theology. So if somebody's not convinced that this is like a worthy way to spend an hour of their time as they're washing dishes and folding laundry, can you help us better understand, like, why would theologians like Packer and Spurgeon, who we hold in such high regard, also hold the covenants in such high regard? Well, Packer and Spurgeon, and think about this, uh, Packer, who passed away last year at the age of, I believe, 93, and then, of course, you know, Spurgeon, and of course, our your listeners can't see, but you can see I've got the whole wall of Spurgeon behind me here. <laughs> Spurgeon bobblehead and... Uh, I've got all kinds of Spurgeon busts and paintings around here. But you have Packer, who is Anglican, Spurgeon, whose dates, of course, are uh, 1834 to 92, the great London Baptist prince of preachers, Yeah, who was also uh, a kindred spirit with me because he loved cigars. And which I think is <laughs> anyway. So the reason that they love covenant theology and, you know, Spurgeon would say that the doctrine of the divine covenant lies at the root of all of all true theology, the reason that. Packer would say what he said is, in my opinion, for two reasons, because of their programmatic, paradigmatic love for the Trinity Uh and for the way that the Trinity has revealed itself in Scripture. Now, what I mean by that, Uh J.I. Packer once said that the Trinity is the basis of the gospel and the gospel is a declaration of the Trinity in action. Let me say that Uh again. The Trinity is the basis of the gospel, and the gospel is a declaration of the Trinity in action. And so to take seriously the Trinity and the way that the Trinity, the three members of the Godhead, are active in our salvation, we are going to 
either intentionally or, or just accidentally, we are going to stumble into covenant theology yeah. in the scripture. And part of that is because the goal of the Father is to glorify himself through the work of the Son. The goal of the Holy Spirit is to point us to the Son who has worked for us. And so the reason that Spurgeon and Packer and a host of other theologians love covenant theology is because the proper way to read the Bible is through a Christ-centered lens. Uh Now, the glasses that I'm wearing right now, I get a lot of compliments on these glasses. Those are pretty cool glasses. They're kind of, you know, I got them at this little bougie place here in in, in Nashville. You have to. You have to. Yeah, you have to. (laughs) And so they're kind of hipster. uh, But I'm 54 years old. These glasses are your grandpa's glasses. There are three (laughs) levels of vision correction in these glasses. If I take them off, right? Everything's blurry. I can't see everything. I I can make things out somewhat, but everything's blurry. I put them on. I see clearly. And so Christ is the lens through which Packer, Spurgeon, others want to read the Bible. And that's and that's actually the way Jesus read the Old Testament. Right? He read it now. You know, uh, through the lens of himself. I mean, you think about this. He would have grown up singing in this in the in the synagogue. Uh, and at the temple, he would have grown up singing Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He was actually singing about himself. Jesus interprets the Old Testament Christocentrically. The apostles interpret the Old Testament Christocentrically. And so they talk about the covenant because they want a programmatic way of seeing what is the overarching narrative. Like you can get up at 30,000 feet and look down at the Bible. What is the lay of the land biblically? I had a guy years ago who I was in a Bible study I was teaching, and he had played uh, for USC back in the day, big old dude was a tight end and uh, he had come to Christ. His wife was so excited. She bought him the biggest, fattest study Bible she could find. And he brought it up to me, wagged it in my face. He said, this is a really big book and I am really intimidated. And it's right that the Bible can be an intimidating book, right? But if you get up at 30,000 feet and look down, you see, okay, that there are some contours here of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And that is a covenantal way of looking at the at the overarching narrative of the Bible. But theologians call this biblical theology uh, in the sense of reformed biblical theology. Your heart is a boss who is sort of the, the father of reformed biblical theology, although we see this Christ-centered, uh, redemptive, historical, biblical, theological way of reading the Bible all the way back in the Fathers. We see it in Calvin. We see it in Luther. We see it in Edwards. We see it in John Owen and the Puritans and on and on. But really, your hardest boss brings it to bear. And and maybe some of your listeners have heard of biblical theology, but like your hardest boss or some such thing. But biblical theology looks at the doctrines in the Bible a little bit differently than systematic theology. Systematic theology looks at the doctrines that the Bible contains in their logical connections. So mm-hmm. what is the logical connection, say, between the doctrine of sin, hamartology, the doctrine of sin, and soteriology, the doctrine of salvation? Mm-hmm. And you look for logical connections in systematic theology. Biblical theology, or say in historical theology, looks at how doctrines have been explained and developed throughout the centuries of the church. Biblical theology is looking at a particular doctrine in the Bible and the way that not it relates chronologically to any, I mean, logically to anything, but the way that it develops chronologically through the pages of Scripture, or the way that a doctrine develops and more and more is revealed about it chronologically through the events, through the timeline of Scripture, or what's called redemptive history. So in some ways, it's it's kind of like this. 
if, if, if I go and, and buy flowers for my wife or your husband and goes and buys flowers for you, we might be tempted to buy flowers that are already opened up and full of bloom. But then the practical side kicks in and we say, but if we buy these flowers that are still a little bit in bud form, they're going to last longer. That flower that's in kind of a bud form over the days and a mm-hmm. couple of weeks, it begins to open up and more and more is revealed about that flower. It's the same flower that it was in bud form. It's just opening up and more and more layers and petals are being revealed. So biblical theology looks at doctrines and how they develop and more and more is revealed. Well, that's a covenantal way of looking at things. And mm-hmm. an example of this would be not just creation, fall, redemption, restoration, but a covenantal way uh, and also a way of seeing this from a Trinitarian perspective would be to say the Bible, at the end of the day, the Bible, covenantally speaking, is simply a tale of trees and temples. It's a tale of trees and temples. Because in the Garden of Eden, that was a temple-like setting. The, the, the point of temple is never the building. Uh-huh. The point of, of the temple theme, biblically, theologically, or covenantally in Scripture, is God dwelling covenantally with his people. Well, in the Garden of Eden, God dwelt covenantally with Adam and Eve. He was in covenantal intimacy and relationship with Adam and Eve. And of course, you know the story, your listeners know the story in Genesis 3. The serpent comes along, and the first question is an effort to cast doubt on the truthfulness of God. Has God really said, can he really be good if he is holding out on you? Has he Has he really said, you can't eat from every tree? And of course, Eve buys into the lie already and says, we can't eat it. We can't even touch it. So she's already bought into the lie that God isn't good. She says, in fact, when we do, we'll die. And Satan says, well, no, God's a liar. You will not surely die. He's not good or he wouldn't be holding out on you. He's a liar. You won't die. In fact, he's insecure. He doesn't want any competition. He knows the day that you eat of it, ye shall be as gods, knowing good from evil. You'll make your own rules about right and wrong. You'll be your own basis of epistemology. You'll be your own measure of truth. You'll be your own gods. Well, of course, Adam and Eve take and they eat. Insofar as their eyes being opened, the serpent was right. Because the text says their eyes were opened, but what did they see? what pathetic excuses for gods they turned out to be. Uh And so they hid themselves with fig leaves. Of course, fig leaves don't cover much. God comes along in Genesis 3.21 and following and covers them with garments of skin. Prefiguring blood had to be shed. You see a covenantal mechanism already in place, the covenantal mechanism of representation. The blood of another had to be shed because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So for them to be covered, Blood had to be shed. That prefigures the Christ of the covenant. But then, of course, they are removed from the garden, not for punishment, but for protection. Because the triune God says now, lest they take and eat of the tree of life and live forever, let's get them out of here. So we got two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where we sinned, the tree of life that we are now being protected from. Because it is, as it were, a sacramental sign in the temple Had Adam and Eve taken and eaten of that tree of life, they would have been confirmed forever in their sinful, fallen, decaying, dying state of separation, right? And so they're taken out of there. And you'll remember that at the east entrance to the garden, Uh God places a flaming sword turning every which way and cherubim. Well, a covenantal way of looking at the Bible would say, okay, what's going on here? We've got representation and now we've got a blocked entrance to the temple. But then you keep going, and and I said the Bible is a tale of trees and temples. we got two trees here. Uh Well, what about temple? Well, they've been blocked out of that temple garden. 
But then as you start turning the page as the Pentateuch, you have the tabernacle, which is God's temple presence in a tent form that can be moved around, set up, taken down. It's mobile. But in Exodus 26, verse 1, God says to Moses, have curtains sewn together that will prohibit entrance to the Holy of Holies. And on those curtains, sew images of cherubim, just like there were cherubim at the, at the entrance to the garden. Hmm. And then we keep reading and we see, of course, as, as God reveals more and more about, about fellowship with him in Deuteronomy 21, 23, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There's a third tree. Now we've got the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, mm-hmm. where we sinned, the tree of life from which we're being protected, which is a confirming tree, and then the tree that is a cursed tree. Uh, cursed is everyone hangs on a tree, Deuteronomy 21, 23, or Galatians 3, 13. Mm-hmm. Now, why is that cursed tree there? Well, that cursed tree is there because of that covenantal representational principle. Someone must do for us what we can't do for ourselves. You probably know, of course, where this is going. Jesus hangs on the cursed tree, the cross. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus hangs on the cursed tree. And while he's hanging on the cursed tree, in Matthew 27, verse 51, an incredibly, remarkably dramatic thing happens. I mean, imagine you're a Levitical priest. You're in the temple just doing your thing, doing your priestly duty. You've heard about this would-be Messiah, this radical, and and the guys in the front office have finally captured him, and they're getting rid of him out on a trash heap. He's being crucified. You're just a Levitical priest back in the temple doing your thing. But then suddenly, this enormous, deafening, rumbling sound happens. You rush out. And your eyes see something they never were prepared to see. You see right into the very Holy of Holies. Why? Because because the temple curtain, Matthew 27, verse 51, has been torn in two and has fallen to the ground. Well, what has fallen to the ground with that curtain is the same thing that was on the curtain in the tabernacle, Exodus 26, verse 1. And those are cherubim. In other words, the way has now been opened by our representative, the way into the Holy of Holies, which is why in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, we are told that we are to approach the throne of grace boldly Mm. because we have a great high priest who has opened the way for us. And I love what that old British New Testament scholar Donald Guthrie once said, just as nothing could bar Jesus from entering the Holy of Holies, so nothing could bar you from entering the Holy of Holies. And that done by our covenantal representative. That covenantal representative has opened the way for us. And then you get to the end of the Bible in Revelation. And what do we see in in chapters 19 and following is that we now, having been covered by the one who paid for our sin at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil by dying on the cursed tree, Uh now returns us to what? In that temple setting, in the end of Revelation, the tree of life, where we are confirmed forever, Uh no longer in a fallen but a glorified state. And we realize that 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 distinction, or what Cornelius Van Til calls the creator the creator creature distinction, is for our good. We're not designed to be our own gods. Again, Adam and Eve, their eyes are open. They realize what pathetic excuses for gods they turned out to be. But here, here's a beautiful way that you see the scripture covenantally. It's not only what I said there about the Bible as a tale of trees and temples, but you remember in Luke 24 when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and there were a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. Mm-hmm. And he comes up, he says, hey, what are y'all talking about? And uh, that's in the MSV, the Mid-South version. What are y'all talking about? <laughs> and they say, well, where have you been? Have you not? I mean, the, the, the one we thought was going to be the Messiah and all our hopes were pinned on him. They just crucified him. It's all come to nothing. 
And it says that he opens the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, and tells them everything about himself. And he's about to leave. And they say, no, 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 please stay with us. And so he stays to have dinner with them. And while he's there at the table with them, Luke 24 tells us that he bids them eat. Now, let's think covenantally here. In Genesis 3, our first parents were forbidden to eat, but they went rogue and they did it anyway. Their eyes were opened. And what did they see? What pathetic excuses for gods they turned out to be. In Luke 24, these two disciples were bidden. They were given permission to eat. And Luke says that when they ate, their eyes were open. And what did they see? Hmm. There is a God. And it's the man standing right in front of us. Hmm. And that's why Packer and Spurgeon love it. But that's just as it centers on Christ. I mean, you can't really read Ephesians 1 and 2 the way that the Trinity, the fingerprints of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit I'm speaking anthropomorphically there. I know that the Father is spirit and the Spirit is spirit. I know that Christ, of course, is eternally in flesh. But you understand what I'm saying. The fingerprints of all three members of the Godhead are all over our salvation. You know, the Father chose us, the Son purchased us, the Spirit redeems and regenerates us and unites us to Christ. So our our salvation is a Trinitarian thing. And uh, that's why they love to read the Bible covenantally, because it's just it's there. And it gives us the lens through which to see how the whole Bible hangs together. It's not just a collection of sort of disparate books that have been sewn together. There is one overarching salvific thread that holds the whole Bible together, and it's the covenant. We'll be right back. I remember I was in a doctoral class with Sinclair Ferguson on the Westminster Standards. And I remember him talking about B.B. Warfield, who was not, of course, a great blues guitar player. B.B. Warfield was a great Princeton theologian back in the day. B.B. Warfield said of the Westminster Confession that the doctrine of the covenant, and I love this word, is the architectonic principle of the entire Westminster Confession. So it's a big deal. What does architectonic mean? Programmatic. It is a substructural yeah. So uh, an architectonic principle is that which undergirds and supports the whole edifice or the whole building. You mentioned this, but covenant theology is so interwoven with soteriology and an understanding of salvation. So how does this covenant story help us better understand our salvation? And how does it actually offer us an assurance of salvation, which I know many of the listeners might struggle with? I'm going to try to make this as brief and simple as I can. Covenant theology and salvation, it's helpful for us to understand that there are, theologically speaking, three covenants that really structure the Bible. There are three covenants in view. So one is the covenant of redemption, that before the foundation of the world, you see this in in Titus chapter 1, you see it in Ephesians chapter 1, you see it in John 17, that Before the foundation of the world, the triune God covenanted together to provide for us what we could not have provided for ourselves. And so theologians call this in Latin the pactum salutis, or the covenant of redemption. It is a pretemporal or pre-time, before-time covenant. But then in time, after creation, you have what's called the covenant of works in the garden where God covenants with Adam and all of Adam's posterity 
In other words, Adam's going to be the representative of all of his posterity, that if Adam obeyed the law of God as given to him in the garden, he would thereby be rewarded with life. And so Adam was in a probationary period in the garden, and he would have been rewarded with life had he fulfilled the covenant of works. Works meaning obedience, the covenant of obedience. And of course, the law laid out for him was really pretty simple. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or we might say what's really underneath that, don't try to be your own God and determine for yourself what is right and wrong and determine your own truth apart from a word from above. I mean, that's, that's kind of the gist of what was going on there, the substance, but it was obedience to God through the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, Adam did, and so he broke covenant with God. I mean, we read about this, of course, because sometimes people will say, people will say, well, you know, the, the language of covenant, which the Hebrew word for covenant is from the word to cut, berit. And it means to cut a covenant, which people say, well, what is a covenant? O. Palmer Robertson in Christ, the covenants defined a covenant as a, uh, a covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. But a covenant is an agreement between parties. It can be unilateral. And in other words, God making the covenant straightforward or bilateral, meaning that there are parties agreeing to conditions and promises and rewards and threats and, and that sort of thing. But this covenant, of course, Adam breaks. And sometimes people will say, well, you know, there wasn't really the language of berit in Genesis chapter 3. That, that word berit, that word for covenant, wasn't actually there. Well, the elements of a covenant are there. Mm-hmm. Parties, threats, promises. But then, of course, Hosea uh, comes and tells us, hold on, uh, they are like Adam and they broke covenant. So it was a covenant in the garden. It's a covenant of works. Adam breaks that. He represents us. We are covenant breakers. We now relate to God as covenant breakers. But then very quickly in Genesis 3, when God comes and he says, Adam, what have you done? You know, where are you? It's not because Adam had a really good hiding place and God was like, okay, I give up. I can't find you, Adam. Where are you? He was calling Adam to account. Of course, Adam steps out and does a double whammy blame shift. Okay, here I am. But Lord, the woman you gave me got me into this mess. So it's her, your fault and her fault, right? If it wasn't for you giving that woman to me, I wouldn't have got into this. I wouldn't have broken covenant. So as a covenant breaker, he throws his wife under the bus, does a double whammy blame shift on her and the Lord. And at that moment, God responds with the first hint of the second covenant, which is the covenant of grace. And that's in Genesis 3.15, what theologians call the proto-euangelion, or the first, the proto-evangel, or the first gospel. And that, of course, in Genesis 3.15 is the promise that the seed will crush the serpent's head. Again, representation. Somebody has to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. So the promise is there of the covenant of grace. And then the first visible manifestation of the covenant of grace is when God covers our first parents. He says, look, Give me that little fig leaf onesie you're wearing. Give me that little fig leaf unitard. I'm going to cover you with garments of skin. Blood has to be shed. And from then on in scripture, we see that one covenant of grace. And this is important to understand. It becomes a hermeneutical or an interpretive principle by which we read the whole Bible and it helps us see how the Bible is structured. And so the covenant of grace then is administered throughout the pages of the of the Old Testament In the Noahic covenant, you have in Genesis uh, 6, a covenant with Noah. And in Genesis 9, 
a covenant with the whole of humanity at the end of that Noahic episode there. In Genesis 12 to 17, you have the covenant of grace administered, not a new, whole different new covenant, but a new administration. That flower's opening up a little bit, right? That bud is starting to open up. The covenant with Abraham, the covenant of grace with Abraham. But again, our listeners need to realize that because it's the covenant of grace that was given in its first form in the promise of a seed, all of these covenant administrations of the covenant of grace are the perpetuation of that seed promise. The seed is going to survive. That seed is going to survive and will crush the serpent's head. Of course, that seed is Christ, but that seed is going to survive. And so with Noah, Genesis 6, 6, 6 and 9, Genesis 12, 17, with Abraham, God cuts a covenant, Barit cuts a covenant. We see in the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace uh, in chapters 19 to 24, with the giving of the law at Sinai. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, there is the promise of the covenant with David, that David is going to have an heir on the throne to be the covenant leader and shepherd of God's people. Well, David was a type of Christ. This is still another administration of that one covenant of saving grace. Uh Even seeing David's life as covenantal, even the most famous story of David is the story of little David taking on the giant Goliath. Uh And to see that covenantally is not to see David as, well, he's like us. And when we face our giants, just have courage and try your best and be brave. That's the message of scripture. No, no, no. Assurance of salvation, salvation is seen in this. David comes as the son sent by his father, Jesse sends David down to fight on behalf of the scared, helpless people of God against their enemy, the giant. He crushes the giant in the head. But a little detail in the story is that Goliath is wearing chain mail, a coat of mail. What is mail? Chain mail is a scale-like armor that layers over itself like scales on a serpent. He crushes the serpent's head. You see what's going on there? I've never noticed the head part. I, I mean, I've always known Goliath got swallowed in the head by a stone, but I never made that connection to Genesis 3.15. That's awesome. Yeah. David is the seed. So the, the purpose of the of the covenant of grace is the perpetuation of this seed promise. Mm-hmm. God's going to make good on his promise that the seed will endure. That was the purpose of salvation from the flood through Noah's lineage. It was the purpose of the promise made to Abraham. I mean, even think about Abraham. You know, in, in Abraham, in Genesis 12 to 17, he makes this promise to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, Abraham, go out and count. In fact, his name was Abram at the time. Abram, go out and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, your offspring will be more numerous than the stars. You can't even begin to count. Abram's like, I'm old. My wife is old. We're we're beyond the, the years of childbearing. But Abraham goes out and he counts the stars. And God makes this covenant with Abraham and said, or with Abram and says, your name is going to be changed from Avram to Avraim, the father of many nations. You will be the father of many nations. You will have a seed. Well, through that seed, of course, who is Isaac, mm-hmm. that Genesis 3.15 promise is carrying on. It's carrying on to David, which we just talked about. But think about this, Genesis 21, and here's where salvation comes into view per your question. I said I was going to answer this briefly. I lied. <laughs> we haven't even made it past the first book here. <laughs> I know, I know. You're great. Keep going. I'm loving it. Genesis 21, Abraham is told, take your son, your only son, yeah, the son of your love, 
and sacrifice him for me. And of course, Abraham goes up. You know the story. He pulls back his knife and he's about to sacrifice Isaac. And an angel stops him and calls Abraham's attention to what? The ram. With his head caught in a thicket. It wouldn't be the last time that a male lamb had his head caught in a thicket. Jesus wore a crown Mm, of thorns. Wow. Jesus is a male lamb. He is a ram with his head caught in a thicket of thorns, as it were. And he's going to be the true sacrifice. So this covenantal, covenant of grace way of reading the whole Bible shows us Christ on every page. Well, so David, uh, he's promised you're going to have an heir. And that seed is going to be on the throne. Well, then by the time you get to Jeremiah 31, we have the new covenant promise. Jeremiah promises a new covenant where their sins will be held against them no longer. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to say, okay, so Jeremiah says there's a new covenant. So is God giving up on the covenant of grace? Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. All of these administrations, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Jeremiah, are administrations of the one overarching mm-hmm. covenant of grace where that flower, that covenant is opening mm-hmm. up a little bit more and a little bit more, and you're seeing a little bit more until finally what is revealed is our sins are going to be held against us no longer. And so this new covenant, of course, in Jeremiah 31, is ultimately mm-hmm. a promise of the next administration, of the covenant of grace, which is going to be the person and work of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's why Jesus says uh, in the administration mm-hmm. of the Last Supper, this cup is the new covenant mm-hmm. in my blood. Now, I guess we can get to that here in a second, because I know that's an important question about the sacraments, but how does this then apply to our salvation? Well, mm-hmm. it's this. An assurance of salvation. The covenant of works was a representation. It was a, a reflection of God's holy character. Can't be denied, can't be changed. God can't say, hey, you know what? I was a little strict, a little rigid. Maybe I was a little you know, heavy-handed there. I'm really not all that holy. Mm-hmm. I'll lighten up a little bit. No, the covenant of works has, I mean, it's still in effect, but you and I have broken it. We can't keep it. Someone must keep it for us. Hmm. So Christ comes along as the second Adam, obeys the covenant of works, which the first Adam failed to obey, thereby establishing our access to the covenant of grace. Hmm. The condition of the covenant of works was perfect obedience to the law of God by God's representative on behalf of the people. Well, Jesus has perfectly obeyed the covenant of works. The condition of the covenant of grace in all of these administrations is that we have faith in someone who can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Abraham, it's not your son. It's that ram over there. Israel, you can't save yourself. Mm. This little runt of a son being sent by the father is going to defend you. Mm. You see what's going on here? Mm. And so the condition of the covenant of grace is our faith in a mediator. Mm. Well, Jeremiah promises the new covenant. And when it's revealed, it's revealed that the mediator of that new covenant or of the covenant of grace, the one covenant of grace in its Old Testament form and its New Testament forms, the same covenant of grace. Old New Testament, hmm. but New Testament, it's revealed that this seed, mm-hmm. this seed, this ram with his head caught in this ark of salvation, this ram with his head caught in a thicket of thorns, you know, this runt who's going to kill the enemy, mm-hmm. this, you know, we go on and on and on, mm-hmm. is Jesus himself. And so we have faith in the mediator who has obeyed the law for us. And so how it pertains to our salvation is that this second Adam comes, he is in one person 
the perfect obeyer of the law of God and the one who has been sacrificed for our sins, perfectly paying for them, so that by trusting in him rather than ourselves, we now are united to the one who has perfectly obeyed the law of God. That's his active righteousness, perfect obedience to the law of God. And through his passive righteousness, which is not inactivity, but the word passive from the Greek word pasco, meaning I suffer, his suffering righteousness has paid for all of our sins. So the Holy Spirit unites us to the one the Father has sent, and being united to Christ, we are now united to the one who is the perfect obeyer of the law of God and has paid for the, our, the sin debt. And so God views us as having obeyed the law of God and being debt-free. And so our assurance of salvation is grounded not in our own efforts, not even in how strong our faith is, because even a weak faith and a strong Savior is enough. Our, our, our assurance of salvation is grounded in the reality that the triune God conspired our salvation in the covenant of redemption, performs it, and, and makes it available for us in the covenant of grace. The second member keeps the covenant of works on our behalf. We enter that covenant of grace and all the promises of it are given to us. We are clothed no longer with fig leaves, but Isaiah 61.10, a robe of Christ's righteousness. And so our assurance is grounded in the fact that the triune God finishes what he starts. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it through the day of completion in Christ Jesus. The triune God, he causes, carries, and completes our salvation. And so our assurance of salvation is in God who keeps his covenant promises. Uh, someone could say, well, then is salvation by grace? Yes, for us. Is salvation by works? Yes, but not yours and mine. Salvation is dependent upon the works of Christ on our behalf. And so for assurance, we have to ask, do I want to stand before God on the basis of my own record or on the basis of Christ's record? Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 3, uh, verses uh, four and following, that he considers his entire life of righteousness, skibalon. That's the Greek word for, well, I want to be delicate here. <laughs> I'll just say it this way. If you live on a farm, you've stepped in it, okay? He's, I, I consider it a pile of excrement, hmm. my own righteousness. I want to be found in Christ, not having hmm. a righteousness of my own, but that which is by faith in Christ. And so that's the word preached to us, the covenant of grace. And then even our participation in the sacraments is a participation and a proclamation of the reality mm -hmm. of the covenant mm -hmm. of grace. Oh, yeah. sorry. You can't do this to me when I'm sitting in a two by four sound booth because I just want to bust out <laughs> of here because I'm so excited. And we, we have very little time left, but we are in this Lenten season right now. So this is just so heartwarming to me, having been thinking about my need for a Savior. You know, I've been meditating on just even in a couple of weeks here, we're going to um, celebrate the resurrection mm -hmm. of Christ. And so we're all probably thinking about or having had having just uh, navigated this season, we've thought about the Last Supper where Jesus offers, uh, he offers the cup to his disciples and he calls this his own blood. It's, he calls it covenant blood. So obviously you've explained this already. Can you tell us like, what does Jesus mean when he says that? I feel like you've already, you've just done such a great job explaining it, but if you want to offer any more uh, insight into that, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, that, that, that's a really, really good question. Um, so when we come to the Lord's table, 
and we take the, the bread and the cup, we have to think about the Old Testament background because Jesus, Jesus in Matthew 26, 28 called it a covenant in his blood. Mm-hmm. This is the new covenant in my blood. Mm-hmm. Well, his disciples would have been reared in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. They would have they would have had some background, and it would have been like this. Jesus' death basically corresponds to and fulfills the Old Testament teaching on animal sacrifice, particularly Leviticus 16, uh, the Day of Atonement. That's why John uh, the Baptist in John 129 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is that sacrificial lamb, that Day of Atonement lamb. You know, Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, I have come not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. Even in John chapter 11, verse 50, the Pharisees are speaking truth they know not the depths of when they say it's expedient that one man should die for the nation. Well, here's the deal. Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, we have in that fourth servant song of Isaiah, Mm -hmm. that beautiful song of the lamb led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So all of that background there on the necessity of the shedding of blood, centuries of the violence and the smell and the sight of bloodshedding, showing the people of God how serious a thing sin is, that sin brings about death. Seeing that poor scapegoat pushed outside the gates of the city, carrying away our sin so that we knew our sin has been taken outside the camp because sin can't be in the presence of God. And that poor goat carries our sin outside the camp. The gates are shut. He's certainly going to die out there. He's going to die of starvation or he's going to die as as prey to some wild beast. And so it has shown us for centuries the seriousness of sin. So all that's in the background when Jesus mm-hmm. says in Matthew 26, 28, um, that, that this is a new covenant. In Luke 22, 19, this is a new covenant in my blood. Now, in Matthew 26, 28, the language that he uses in the Greek is ta'emamutes diathekes. This is the covenant in my haima, my mm-hmm. blood. That language is taken from Exodus 24, verse 8, hmm. where uh, we, we actually read uh, God saying, you know, behold, uh, habarit asher, uh, Kareth, I am cutting this covenant with you, right? This is a covenant. And Moses, and, and then we, and, and Moses took the blood, he throws it uh, on the people, he covers mm-hmm. it with blood. And he says, Behold the blood of the Barit that the Lord has cut with you this day. The covenant that the Lord has cut with you this day, according to his, according to his word, mm. according to his word. This is his covenant. Well, the, the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, translates that Hebrew verse from Exodus 24, verse 8, this way. Kaipin idu tahima taste diathekes. This is the blood of the covenant hmm. that the Lord is making with you this day. Wow. Why do I say all that? Because when Jesus says what he says in mm. Matthew 6, 28, He's not just making something novel up. Hmm. He is quoting and and saying, this is being fulfilled right in your presence. It is me. I am the blood that was thrown on the people of God. Hmm. I am. It was my blood ultimately Hmm. that covers them. It is my blood that is the securing of the covenant that God is making. Now, he's intentionally saying that his blood is the fulfillment of Exodus 24 verse 8. But he also says this. 
This is the new covenant in my blood for what? The forgiveness of sins. Mm. What's he doing there? Fulfilling Jeremiah 31, 31, mm. 34, where Jeremiah says, I'm going to send, or I'm, I'm telling you about a new covenant where their sins will be remembered no more. So Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the covenant of grace. I am the blood that, that God made covenant with, uh, with, with Moses in Exodus. And it's going to result in what Jeremiah promised in the new covenant, that your sins will be held against you no more. But, but then somebody may ask, okay, but why do we have to drink it? Well, here's where it gets really good. In Genesis chapter nine, verse four, God prohibited his people from eating sacrifices or eating animals with their blood still in them. Hmm. Why? Because life was in the blood. Hmm. Life was in the blood. But in John 6, 53, Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Hmm. So the point is this. There is ultimately only one blood. Hmm that we must drink, that can give us life. And it is the blood of Christ. And so when Christ said, take and drink, mm. he was saying, take and drink this blood, because this is actually the blood that all other blood was pointing forward to, namely my blood, which is shed for you. So when Jesus says, this, that this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, he is saying, it is finished. It is about to be finished. The, the, the blood that needed to be shed for the mm -hmm. fulfillment of covenant is my blood. Hmm. take and drink it. Because if you drink it, you take it into yourself, you have life. If you think about eating, there are a few things we do mm -hmm. more intimate than the act of eating and drinking. We're taking something that was outside of us and we're taking it into us. Hmm. And what's going on there is a reception of the gospel, mm -hmm. a reception and a, and a display of our dependence upon the gospel uh, in the most intimate way possible. The Lord's Supper is a sensible physical sign that affirms that the salvation wrought for us in Jesus' fulfillment of the covenant of grace is not just a spiritual thing so that we live forever as a disembodied soul floating around in some nebulous, hazy existence, but that the scope of his redemption is also physical, that the very bodies that are ingesting the bread and the wine, our very bodies, the goodness of our bodies are being affirmed, and there is a promise being made hmm. that these bodies are going to continue to feast on Christ because, of course, hmm. the Lord's Supper is nothing if it is not a rehearsal dinner for the great marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, like you get married the night before, you have the rehearsal dinner and the rehearsal, but the great feast is the next day after the wedding. And so the Lord's Supper that we take is a rehearsal dinner for the great marriage feast of the Lamb. The commonality of both of them is that we are depending upon the one whose blood alone could fulfill the covenant of grace and all of its administrations. And the reason that he could fulfill the covenant of grace and make the covenant of grace a reality for us to enter into is because he fulfilled the covenant of works that we couldn't fulfill. And all of that was planned in the covenant of redemption. Wow. You know, I think everybody at this point is just like me, where all they want to do is figure out a way to continue <laughs> tapping into this type of information and studying uh, to this degree. Do you have anything that might be of interest to us? I mean, I 
just sitting with you has been such a gift because I have tried to dabble in at least three books and I just think I might be accessing the wrong books. So can you tell us what books do you recommend? (laughs) Oh my goodness. I'll give you a list as long as your leg. I'll keep you here for another hour just rattling off book titles. All right. Top three. Oh my goodness. You're killing me. I can't do it. Um, Okay. So I'll do this. Um, Read the Westminster Confession, chapter seven of God's covenant with man. Okay. Read Calvin's Institutes. Well, just read Calvin's Institutes because that's <laughs> Trinitarian theology for the life of the church. Calvin's Institutes, book one's about the Father, book two's about the Son, book three's about the Holy Spirit, book four is about the church. It's Trinitarian theology for the life of the church. Wow. But book two is where we talk about the covenant, okay. particularly uh, two, nine through 11 or 12. So read that. I would also say John T. Rhodes has a little yes. uh, quick little book that, that's accessible, uh, that is helpful on this subject. I think Lewis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, Okay, his sections on covenant theology are really, really good. Uh, Ligon Duncan, who is yeah. the, um, the, the been provost. been on the show before, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. So he has a great, and you can Google this, it's online, both in mm-hmm. audio and the transcript mm-hmm. of it. His lectures on covenant theology, which yes. are fantastic. The RTS app, you can get them for yeah. free. Get that for free. That that's really great. Um, I would. Oh, good grief! The other thing I would say, and it's kind of a, a weighty volume, uh, but it's covenant theology. This is done by the faculty, the resident faculty of of Reformed Theological Seminary. Oh, cool! It's, called, um, it's just called covenant theology. Covenant theology: Biblical, theological, and historical perspectives. Now you got to turn mm-hmm. Netflix off when you read this book. It's it's. I mean, it's a. <laughs> It's a spicy meatball. Let me tell you, it's it's. When you said you like to lift heavy things, were you talking yes, about? <laughs> yes, I'm talking about this book. About this book right but this book is really, really fills a lacuna that has existed for a long time, or a gap that's existed for a long time. Huh. Um, there are so many other, so many other great resources, but I think those would would get you started, and. Um, you know, there, there are some other popular level things. Um, uh, R.C. Sproul has a, a little book on what is Reformed theology and he has a book mm-hmm. on covenant theology that's mm-hmm. kind of popular, popular level. Um, but th- those things, I would say, would be my first go to for, awesome. for your listeners. Well, for sure, sitting and chatting with you in the closet has been one of my simple joys this week. I feel like I'm, you know, you showed me your collection of like Hobbit paraphernalia and yeah. like, J.R. Tolkien yeah. stuff. And I, I really feel like I've been sitting here talking to like a very young version of Gandalf <laughs> where I'm like, <laughs> yes, teach me everything. Very young, very young. I like that. Very, very young. young. And you can tell by the length of the beard, very young. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I've still got a ways to go. Although my wife's going to say, don't even put ideas in his head. He is so Um, ready for it to go. I wish I could ask you about your three simple joys, but we've really extended our time today. I do want to ask you one question that I ask every guest who comes on the show. Um, Who is it that's had the greatest impact on the way that you know and love God? Mm. Um, I can do this in 30 seconds. Uh, I'm going to answer the three simple joys. Uh, The beauty of Christ, the sweetness of Christ, the beauty of Christ. Uh, my wife and my kids, mm. and uh, the means of grace. Those are my joys. So I got three in that last one. Look the at that. Sacraments and prayer. So I've actually <laughs> see what I did there. Um, who has impacted me? I'm gonna I'm gonna say. So my mama and daddy exemplified compassion. My mama was the most compassionate person I've ever known. 
And so that for me has, has shown me a lot. I would say others who have been in, have been very formative for me. Uh, probably no one has been more formative for me spiritually uh, than uh, in terms of like the, the giants mm-hmm. on whose shoulders we stand. I would say probably Jonathan Edwards mm-hmm. uh, at the at the personal spiritual level. But there but there are so many others. Spurgeon. I wouldn't be in ministry. Spurgeon has has uh, lifted me out of the slough of despond, as Bunyan would say many times. Um, mm-hmm. I could go on and on, but I think that'd be my answer to those things. Wow. Well, this has just been such a delightful time. I could do so an entire series with you. I know you don't have time for that, but I'm I'll telling totally you, do it. one I'll hour totally do it. has been a tremendous gift on behalf of all the Journey Women listeners all over the world. Thank you so much for making a topic that seems really daunting, so winsome and so accessible. I cannot wait to go back to edit this show. I don't love editing podcasts, but I'm going to love editing this one because it's just been so robust. I really appreciate you joining us on the Journey Women podcast today. Totally my pleasure. Thank you. We pray that this conversation serves to remind you of God's steadfast, unshakable, covenantal love for His people. If you want to access scripture references, quotes, or resources from my conversation with Dr. Filson, you can find all of that over in the show notes on our website at journeywomenpodcast.com. There you can also find more episodes in this series, Knowing and Loving God. If you liked this episode, we would love it if you would take just a few seconds to leave a rating and review on iTunes. We read every single one of them, like this one from D. Spaulding that says, This is one of my go-to podcasts for when I'm feeling particularly distant from God. Such biblical encouragement and so Christ-oriented. Praise God. We are so grateful that's shining through and we're thankful for the time that you took to share your feedback with us. Doing so really does help get the podcast into the hands of other women who might find it helpful as they navigate whatever seasons and challenges they might be facing on their own journeys to glorify God. This episode was edited and sound designed by the team at SoundOn Studios. You can find out more about their work at soundonsoundoff.com. We are so grateful for them and for you. It's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. Can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week.